Bar, welcome to the Data Bytes podcast. Excited for this conversation for a while. I mean, you are such just a powerhouse in the space of data and analytics and I think a role model that a lot of us look to up to having co-founded your own company and really leading the way for a lot of companies in terms of data observability. So definitely a lot to cover in this episode. So I want to dive in and hear a little bit more about your story. Like how did you first get started in data analytics and what piqued your interest in this area? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, you're very kind. Um, but, you know, we're, we're having a lot of fun kind of, tr- you know, tracing the story back to um, you know, kind of my childhood. Um, I was actually born sort of on university ground. So my daughter, my, my dad is a um, physics professor and my mom is like a meditation and dance teacher. Um, so growing up, I actually had my own lab, um, sort of like built different things uh, and experimented, ran, ran these sort of uh, experiments, um, which is, you know, a great way to learn about science. Um, and uh, later on in, in my career, um, you know, studied math and stats, actually thought that I was going to go into academia, um, tried that for a little bit and realized that in, as an extrovert, um, you know, I, I was a lot more attracted to working kind of with, uh, you know, building organizations, building teams. And so, so basically did like a, you know, strong 180, I went actually to learn about business. Uh, so worked, um, at a consulting company. Um, worked a lot with the data science team there, uh, learned how to use R and how to do surveys and all this good stuff. And a lot of the things sort of from even at that point was um, seeing how decision making happens in business with actually very limited or bad data. Um, and the reality is that, you know, even back then, this was like a decade or so ago, people want to use data and look at data to make decisions. But so often there's no data at all. Maybe because it's a decision about, you know, a hypothetical future or there's data, but it's wrong, it's biased, it's subjective, it's partial, it's inaccurate. And yet we still need to make decisions. Um, And I was fascinated by sort of, you know, what that looks like, sort of the process of thinking about how do how do I find the best data to answer this question? What does that look like? Um, And, you know, how do I make the best use of data that I have? to better the outcome um, for, for my people or my customers or my team or, or whatever it would be. Um, and then later on, I joined a company called uh, Gainsight um, uh, to help build the customer success category. Uh, and there were a couple of things that I loved about it. First was, you know, seeing what it looks like when you create something from nothing. Actually, the process of category creation is, is quite fascinating. You know, when I joined, the company was really small. Customer success was a very sort of nascent, fluffy idea. Um, and then, you know, a couple of years later, there's really very few companies in the world without anything like customer success. And you have to be crazy to not be thinking about your customer success today. And so seeing that process was very inspiring to me. Um, and then, you know, the second thing was that I personally started using data a lot more. And as an organization, we actually use data, whether to inform the board and how the business is doing, whether to surface to our customers. Um, and the data was wrong all the time like literally all the time. Um, and I was like, what's going on? Like, am I crazy? Is the world crazy? Who's crazy here? Um, why can't we like get, you know, some piece of information, you know, some data that's accurate and, and actually like use that? Um, that kind of drove me nuts. Um, 
And so later on, I decided to start start a company. Um, actually, started three companies in parallel with my first time. So I was like, okay, you know, let's see what it looks like. Start a couple, see see what um, what it takes. And that was very um, also educational for me to kind of see what you know product what product market fit sort of in the early days might look like or not look like. Um, and um, yeah, you know. Um, the sort of idea of data observability and data reliability was the one that I saw the most sort of pain in with customers. Um, folks reacted to most strongly. It's all be also something that I felt sort of personally um, related to based on my experiences. So we started Monte Carlo um, a little over three years ago now. Um, and, you know, I've been fortunate since to work, uh, you know, with some of the best data teams, you know, on on the planet, whether that may be you know, JetBlue, Vimeo, Gusto, CNN, New York Times, so many sort of top-notch data teams. So um, that's a little bit about how I got interested in data to begin with. I love it. And I want to go back to a point you made when you were sharing your story, which I think is really important to call out. But you notice that most people actually want to use data to make decisions. And I think this is helpful to think about because, you know, we have so many leaders who are like, we're trying to make our organization a data-driven organization and to know that like a lot of the people in your organization actually want better information to make those decisions right i think if we look at it personally like in our own life when we're making a hard decision we oftentimes like go and talk to our friends and our family right trying to get more insight and data in an ad hoc way of what we should do so i think that's important to call out like it's an intuitive thing for us as individuals to want really good information to make those decisions but I love how you have identified a lot of times it comes down to a lack of trust in the data or the data being wrong. And so you're not going back to the data to try and fix it or make those decisions. But you use that as inspiration to start a company and um, pioneered a whole new category of solutions, one of those being data observability. So can you talk a little bit more about what is data observability and like how does this differ from traditional data quality solutions that's this is essential for us to be able to make decisions? You know, I'll start by saying that I'm blown away by how much data is permeating everything that we're doing. Um, like I'll give you an example. I was at a holiday party, a Hanukkah party last night. I was chatting with someone who runs legal and policy at a crypto company. Um, it's a really interesting time to be in crypto. Obviously, there's a lot of things that are happening. Um, and you can be bullish or not about crypto, but at the end of the day, the fact that, you know, um, uh, people in policy and legal and those companies are looking to data. I'm just, I'm just speaking with her and she mentioned how data has become instrumental to their ability to actually navigate these times. Um, so she actually learned SQL for this purposes and, um, you know, her team does and they work very, you know, close and hand in hand with analysts. And, um, you know, I think I think the fact that we actually have data and can use data to inform decisions across the business is really striking, even in an area that you, know, you wouldn't think the function that, that you know, the, that would is historically very far from sort of data and, and analysis. Um, and I think that just shows how much the world has changed. Um, you know, maybe a decade ago, there wasn't almost any data available. Maybe five years ago, you were kind of like innovative if you're using data, but really you were largely using data to kind of report on 
you know, how many customers you have, which we, by the way, still, still to this date, no customer, no business can, can figure out how many customers they have exactly. Um, it's the, the, the ever elusive, uh, uh, thing that we have to figure out. It's pretty basic math and yet we still can't do it. Um, and fast forward today where organizations are using data everywhere. Um, and I think there's some numbers in, in, you know, out there in the market to support that claim. So whether you look at Snowflake, who's posting almost $2 billion in revenue, or will be posting $2 billion in revenue, which is insane. It's not market size, literally revenue. And there's like four or five other companies similar size and stage or, or you know, kind of roughly order of magnitude. So Databricks at around a billion um, in revenue, BigQuery rumored for at $1.5 billion, et cetera. Uh, and when you look at customers and you look at businesses, they are using data everywhere. So having, you know, several hundred data products is not uncommon. Uh, this problem starts when the data is actually wrong or inaccurate, like you pointed out, lack of trust. So I'll give an example. Um, Equifax, which is a credit score company, um, actually, you know, the, one of three sort of big uh, uh, bureaus uh, actually reported a couple of months ago that they assigned wrong credit score numbers to millions of users because of wrong data. Um, think about the implications of that. There's millions of users out there who, um, you know, can't take a mortgage or can't take a loan or, um, you know, are denied for a bunch of other things or, you know, their personal lives have been impacted because of this problem, right? Um, that's, you know, everyone in, in the States has a credit score. It's something that, you know, you, you can't, kind of go unnoticed, right? Um, that's kind of one example. You know, another example could be um, Unity, which is sort of a gaming company, sh uh, shared that one mistake that they had related to their ads data actually cost them $100 million. Literally just one mistake. Uh, another kind of issue from from uh, the news, actually Columbia University, it's a university that, you know, historically ranked very high um, in, in sort of university rankings actually published several months ago that that was based off of wrong data. And so they're actually sort of, um, I think they're down to like number 18 or something. Um, and so, you know, the implications of us using data more and more often by more people in more forms and more ways is awesome. But the data is wrong, which has serious implications on people everywhere. Um, and from that juxtaposition, if you will, is how data observability was born. And so, you know, and we look at how important it is to use data, but then how hard it is, the question becomes, how can we actually build in um, tools and platforms that will help us make sure that that data is actually accurate? Um, and this is where we actually turn to software engineering. Software engineering has been managing applications and infrastructure for, you know, a couple of decades or several decades now. And they have developed different ways to make sure that those are reliable and can actually be trusted, right? Like when you're you know, when you're using, um, you know, this uh, um, uh, website to record the podcast, you're counting on it being, you know, working for for, for most of it, right? Um, and if the server is down or whatever, like, they're going to hear about it. And so there's different ways to make sure that, um, you know, the service that we're providing is actually reliable. And as data becomes at the center of that, we need to develop ways to actually make sure that data is reliable. And so the concept of observability actually goes way back, actually actually goes back even before software engineering, goes back to sort of manufacturing and QA and, you know, literally back to the days when, you know, you would kind of, um, uh, you know, work largely in, in kind of manufacturing operations. 
and sort of comes from that. And, you know, the idea is, can you actually observe or, or can you determine the health of a system based on observing its outputs? And if you take that concept and apply that to data, what does that mean? Can you actually determine the health of your data pipelines, the reliability of your data across your system, but actually looking at the output of the data? And so what do we actually mean when we say the output of the data? We spoke to hundreds of data teams, part of kind of starting the company, building the company, um, spoke with several hundred teams and asked them, like, what does it look like when data is wrong? Like, how do you know? What are the symptoms? What are, the, what's, what are some of the contributors to root cause? And based on that, we actually codify these five pillars that we call the data observability pillars. Um, so those are freshness, volume, schema, quality, and lineage. Um, and by automatically looking or sort of collecting information about each of these um, pillars, data teams are able to move from a state where they're learning about these data problems from their end users or from other people many months later actually proactively learning about these issues in real time or sometimes even actually preventing those to begin with. Um, so that's a really powerful um, change that, that you're able to introduce by introducing um, data observability. That comes to mind when you mentioned this almost like a health assessment is like my Apple Watch, which tracks my steps and, you know, I can set goals for how I want you know, how many steps I'm taking, how many, my movement goals, my standing goals, et cetera. So kind of when you're telling me about this freshness, value, schema, quality, and lineage, I'm always looking at it at like a medical chart, though, for my data of like the quality and health of how doing. For that reason, if we go with that analogy, do you have to be a doctor in a way to read the medical chart? Or can anyone read this health assessment checkup, right? Once you've implemented this and you have these key indicators, does, is almost anyone in the company available to assess this now and look at it? Or is this a specialized person who takes these assessments and measure and see where some of the breaking points in the quality of the data are? Yeah, I love that metaphor. You know, I think when if you kind of think about the human body, we're sort of, you know, we're constantly like, checking our temperature, right? Like, how am I feeling? Am I really hot or cold right now? We're making sure that we're breathing, right? Oftentimes people forget to breathe, um, <laughs> right? Uh, we're making sure that, you know, we're eating, right? Uh, making sure that there's some like, you know, blood pressure. All those things give us an indication of the health of the system. Um, and, you know, I would say when you think about uh, reliability of data pipelines, that's exactly right. So you're constantly sort of checking for those things that might go wrong um, and you're proactively looking for signs that something might be might be off or might be surprising. Um, now, in terms of who actually does the checks, that's a great question. You know, it's interesting. I would say the number or types of people who are, have been involved in data has changed a lot. So we talked about, you know, 10 years or so when, you know, people are not really using data or using data very sporadically. That would really be confined to several analysts that typically report to the financial team or the IT team. And, and that's about it, right? And so that data would be looked at pretty thoroughly. Like we talked about looking at the number of customers that you might have and maybe reporting numbers to the street. You'd have a full quarter to actually look in depth at the, at the signals, right? At the blood pressure, at the you know, rate of, um, of breathing. And you, you could actually like validate that what you're sharing is accurate because you manually like checked every single number. Um, but in today's world, you don't have a full quarter to do that. You're using the, the data, you know, maybe 
it's like you're going on, you might be called to go on a run at any minute and you need to meet, meet to make sure that you're actually like in t- you know tip top shape to go on that run um it's not like you don't have a full quarter to prepare for a marathon you might be called on today or tomorrow right um and in those instances there's there's also as that has changed there's also more and more people um working with the data so there's you know engineers that work with sort of applications infrastructure and APIs that might actually sort of you know, be upstream of data pipelines. Then there's sort of data um, engineers that actually sort of, um, you know, uh, ingest or transform the data. You might have analytics engineers along the way. And then you often have analysts or data scientists who are consuming the data. And oftentimes downstream from that, you might actually have sort of, you know, external customers um, who are using the data. And so who gets to check the pulse of the data? Um <laughs> I think, you know, that's at, that's at the root of it. I would say the de facto state today is that every single person is looking at the quality of the data. And that's perhaps the problem, is that every single stakeholder notices that data is wrong and there's not a single entity that's actually responsible for this. Um, and so part of, you know, for companies who take on their data observability journey, part of this is actually identifying who is the, you know, where does the buck stop? And who is actually accountable for it? Um, we often find that it's the teams like data engineering teams who are responsible for it. So they will actually be the people who, um, you know, review um, the alerts and will say like, hey, it looks like, you know, the null rate in this particular field is way higher than I expect or lower. Let me take a look at that and investigate. Um, so data engineers are the one who are sort of, you know, taking this problem by the reins. But it, in, it necessitates data analysts, data scientists, folks who are downstream to, to be, um, you know, um, to be part of the story, right? And to be, to be able to say, hey, like, you know, historically we've had, you know, one issue a day. Now we have one issue a week. And, you know, that's due to these sort of proactive measures that we've put in place or um, basically have some buy-in from the downstream consumers that this is an important problem. Um, and obviously, working with upstream um, uh, producers of data to help align on um, contracts or um, SLAs or what does great look like? Um, so it does, you know, I, I would say it does include everyone who's touching data. And there's way more people who are involved with the process of data today. But I think the key ownership should lie with data engineers is what, what we largely So one of the things that comes to mind when you're mentioning the different measures that you value of freshness, value, schema, quality of lineage is a health assessment, like going to the doctor and getting my medical chart or reading the stats on my Apple Watch. And in that regard, you know, I'm my own kind of mini doctor with my Apple Watch and, and, and Google, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But if I'm having a health assessment of the quality of my data, is that something that any individual of the organization can assess and review? Or should that be directed to somebody who's qualified with reading these assessments? And where does that responsibility lie? So I, th- I would say um, a couple of things. One is, you know, I, I love the metaphor and I think we've, um, you know, exactly like how you think about um, Kind of testing or sort of uh, doing kind of checks for for yourself in your day to day. You're checking whether you're breathing, how you feel, if you're hot or cold, if you're hungry, if um, uh, if you need to go out on a walk. Um, you, you're kind of you know doing those checks regularly. Um, 
and you have a pretty set things that you know you need to look for or that you know that you need to check. Um, and similarly with data, that's exactly actually what we're doing with data observability, right? We're sort of doing these regular checkups to make sure that, you know, um, blood pressure is right and, you know, there's enough oxygen in blood and kind of all those, all that good stuff. And, um, you know, kind of the question of who actually does those checks is, is a good one. And I would say that the number and type of people that have been involved with data in general has also changed a lot. So, you know, I would say, um, you know, five or 10 years ago, when you were just using data to report on how many customers you had or how much revenue you have, um, you had a very small number of people, typically like a couple analysts who reported into IT or finance and had the full quarter to make sure that data is accurate. So they could literally manually make sure that every single number is right, could go and count whatever it is. Um, and that's not the case today. Today, you have lots of people who are using the data. You know, it's, it's kind of as if, uh, you know, in, in the past, you had like a full, a full quarter to prepare for a marathon. And now you're going to go on a run at any given moment. And you need to make sure that you're in tip-top shape to go on that run. Um, and so in order to do that, um, you have to think differently about how you prepare. Um, and when you think about the, the type of people who are involved with data today, there's oftentimes sort of software engineers who are building you know, um, uh, infrastructure or API or, um, you know, might, you know, might have some kind of involvement upstream. You'll have data engineers who are actually sort of responsible for ingestion, transforming, processing the data. You might have analytics engineer along the way. And then you have data consumers downstream, like data analysts or data scientists who are actually using the, using data. Oftentimes you might actually also have external customers who are using maybe reports that you're sending them. Or if you're surfacing data in your product, they could be actually using, you know, looking at sort of the price of a particular item, um, looking at a recommendation that you might be suggesting them. In all of those instances, all those people are actually um, looking at the data and doing those checks because that's sort of a natural inclination, right? We look at the data and we're like, hey, does this look right or not? Um, and oftentimes, those people who are looking at the data are those reporting on the data being wrong. And so the most common scenario is for data consumers downstream to go back to data engineers and say, hey, WTF, the data here is wrong and I don't know why, um, right? And so the idea is, can you actually create these proactive checks so that those people downstream don't find out about it, uh, but rather you can give them a heads up or prevent it from happening to begin with? Uh, so, you know, I'll give you um, kind of an example from, from a real sort of a, a story. So JetBlue, is a sort of a you know international airline company. If you're familiar with for folks going on trips, you know this is just just before the holidays. I know there's lots of uh, kind of trips coming up, um, and JetBlue team actually uses data quite a lot, uh, both for operational um, tracking, like making sure that your suitcase is arriving at, at you know at the right terminal, and um, you know if you have a connecting flight that 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 suitcase is going to make your way. Um, and also the support team, right? So making sure that customer complaints or customer questions are responded to in a timely manner. Um, and the JetBlue team actually created sort of a team that they called Eyes on Glass to manually review the data. So think about it, literally like people looking at the data to make sure that it's accurate, which is awesome because we want to make sure that our suitcases are getting there on time. But also, you know, with the increase of like flights and data about those and information and all that, actually making sure it's kind of a, a way making sure to have a way that's automated and scalable to make sure that data is right has be was becoming a necessity. 
And so, you know, the data team kind of put data observability at the forefront of that. And it's largely sort of the data engineering team who's responsible for making sure that 100% of um, alerts or incidents um, in the data are responded to in a timely manner. Um, and that prevents folks downstream actually identifying or learning about these problems. So I would say in an ideal state, it's the data engineering team, um, or often that's who we find most responsible for that, with its you know, data analysts, data scientists, and customers downstream being the main beneficiaries of that. So what I love about this example is it goes back to solving that problem we talked about in the beginning of getting that trust of the data so people continue to make those data-driven decisions where instead of waiting for them to come to you with the problem and saying, hey, this doesn't look right, you're being proactive and saying, okay, we know we've checked it, we've looked at the health, the quality, it's good to go, which is just going to continue to reinforce those individuals who are working with the data and using it to make decisions to continue to have that trust. So I love this proactive approach to what you're doing with data observability. If individuals are saying, hey, I want to get started with this and I'm a chief data officer and want to make sure that I'm taking that proactive approach, how do you work to get the buy-in for this? Because I think you mentioned something earlier that's important, which is we know what happens and the cost when your data is wrong, right? You use the example of Columbia and um experience and the credit scores, but how do you quantify the costs when it's right? So I'm looking to get this investment, right? And it's really a proactive measure and a productive measure. How do I get that buy-in and communicate that value from the beginning? Great question. And one that's very top of mind, especially these days, right? I would say, you know, in today's market, really sort of any, um, any expense or any spend is scrutinized in a very different way than it was a couple of years ago. And I actually think that's going to make, you know, the entire data industry a b better, right? It's going to force us to actually think about ROI, prove the value of what we're doing, which is great. It's, it's actually very healthy for us to be in that state. Um, you know, when it comes to sort of how folks think, of, think about actually justifying data observability or data quality, the number one thing that folks look at is how much and how, you know, how deeply do they care about the data that they do have. Um, so if you've invested, actually, like if you've decided that you want to use data, if you decided that you have the infrastructure to collect that data, to store that data, to process it, to analyze it, not having something to actually make sure that the data is accurate is kind of insane, um, right? And by and large, unacceptable today. So oftentimes CFOs and CIOs will look at, you know, the expenses that we've had for, you know, your data warehouse, your data lake, your ETL, your, your BI systems, all of that good stuff, which is making data actually accessible and available to data teams. But if that data is wrong, then all of that investment is basically moot. Um, and so what we're seeing is moving to a place where data teams that or organizations that know that they care about data, care about data quality. Um, you know, if I actually want to use data, I need to put data quality at the forefront. Um, so it's actually quite common for us um, to meet data teams who, you know, say that data quality is sort of a top company OKR um, for, uh, for this coming year. Um, you know, they've invested so much in data in the past year and now they actually want to start using it. Um, we see organizations saying that, you know, teams have grown significantly and they want to move in an effort to reduce costs to a more self-serve motion. 
where um, consumers can actually, um, you know, use data in a different way that they have historically. In order to do that, you need to make sure that the data is actually right and that everyone can know that it's right. And so helping to power that story of data quality as self-service has become really important. Um, so I would say, you know, just in the same way that you would kind of have to be, or it would be sort of unacceptable to build an engineering team and not have something like New Relic or Datadog, um, App Dynamics, whatever you'd like to make sure that your applications and infrastructures are reliable in the same way, you know, it's quite unacceptable for a data team in 2023 to be building data applications, data products, and not have something to make sure that the data is reliable. Makes a lot of sense. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, we're beginning the new year, 2023, right around the quarter here. In terms of the broader data trends, what's top of mind? What are some of your maybe predictions for 2023? I know you mentioned, you know, people are looking at costs and really looking at the value of their data. But beyond the world of data governance, what do you think we're going to see in terms of data and trends in 2023? Yeah, so I would say, you know, one of the one of the big trends in the last year was sort of the concept of data mesh. Um, for folks who are not familiar with that, it's basically an idea, sort of a, a move to, um, by and large, like decentralized embedded teams. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, really simplifying it here. Um, you know, I think there's teams who are starting on that journey um, and might have sort of a pit stop on the way, if you will. Um, sort of a, a hybrid version, if if you will, between sort of a very centralized um, team and a fully distributed model. Um, so we are seeing more and more folks thinking about the organizational structure uh, of their of their teams within that context. And I think looking at next year and sort of pairing this with the comment about scrutiny and cost, we do see organizations continuing to invest in hiring data teams um, and building data teams and releasing more data products and building data products. And I think. You know, looking at it, I'm, um, you know, bullish on data continuing to be sort of a strong and great area for folks to be in. Um, I think data is actually projected to be the fastest growing um, IT spend in the next three to five years. Um, that's really powerful. And I think, you know, especially in, in um, you know, when, when you think about uh, teams um, and uh, the impact that they can have on the business, it becomes even more important and sort of acute in these times. And so the question then is like, how do you structure the teams for maximal impact? And so one of the things I think are interesting is sort of the idea of like the past the data mesh or the pit stops on the way there, if you will. Um, and how do you actually sort of organize your team in maybe, you know, uh, like uh, uh, sort of a hub and spoke model, if you will, that both sort of allows to have um, sort of a centralized kind of data platform, um, but also uh, um, uh, kind of anal analysts or um, data teams who are aligned with a particular domain, like the finance team or the marketing team, um, which allows you to actually spe specialize in, in um, those kind of data products. I think that's one interesting area. I would say the other related is actually sort of different roles. I think in the last year we've seen the rise of the analytics engineer um, uh, uh, kind of as, as a new role. And I think there's actually going to be additional roles on top of that um, that follow. And so, for example, um, you know, uh, data ops, data product managers. I think data product managers is one of the, the roles that I'm particularly most excited about. 
I think it's a very natural evolution. And, you know, in, in organizations that I see data product managers, they are able to make a big impact in terms of what, um, you know, what initiatives a data team works on and what they're not working on, which is also very important to define this year. Um, so I think on sort of the people and organizational structure, there's definitely some interesting things. I think on, on the tech side, you know, obviously sort of there's, there's the, you know, kind of big, uh, you know, data warehouse, data lake, data lake house and everything that's in between. I think we're continuing to see sort of convergence of those, whether it's Snowflake announcing things like Snowpipe for streaming. And on the other hand, you see Databricks announcing or sort of really leaning into their Delta table format. Um, and um, I think sort of the, the lines are definitely blurring there. So, you know, I expect to see continued um, blurriness there. Um, and then maybe, you know, one other kind of um, early stage uh, trend that I'm excited about um, uh, that I find interesting is actually the idea of data contracts. Um, and that's the idea of can you actually stop sort of data in its tracks earlier? Um, uh, you know, I would say it's still very, very early stage, kind of even defining the concept and, you know, let alone putting it in reality. But I'm excited to see, you know, what teams in this area can do in the next year. I love it. Well, I'm happy to hear of your predictions of the expansion of roles, the growth in this area, and that this is still the right place to be for individuals. So as there is still so much opportunity in data careers, do you have any advice for aspiring data leaders? So someone who's already working in the field, they are looking to move up and really become uh, voice of reason and that thought leader in space. Yeah, well, first what echo, you, you know, it's really, I think maybe the best time to be in data. But I think if you're looking, you know, if you're sort of in, in a point in your career, one of the most important things to do, well, there, there's a couple of things, but one is, can you make a real impact in the world? And I think that by and large has proven the case with data. There isn't, you know, an, an area that's not impacted by data, right? Whether it's, um, uh, you know, nonprofit, policy, legal, um, business, technology, there isn't an area that's not totally disrupted by data. Um, and, you know, we've seen this in COVID, the use of data. We've seen this with Chad GPT, which is now taking the world by storm, um, right? There's, we've seen this really everywhere. And so if you're looking for an area where you can actually make an impact, I feel strongly, strongly that you know, the next sort of wave of innovations and wave of, um, you know, changing the world will actually come from data and AI and ML. I think the second space in looking into your career is a space that's changing and evolving. Um, because in a space that's changing and evolving, that means there's opportunity. There's opportunity to find that change, to grow with it. Um, and so, you know, I think the data space by and large is like one of the fast moving spaces ever. Like, you know, as, as it's really hard to stay on top of everything that's happening. Um, and, and I can't think of like many industries that require so much from our practitioners. Um, and, you know, there's like the problem du jour and the tool du jour and there's just so much stuff. And so, you know, even stay on top of like the status, the, what, what's now happening is super hard, but that's actually great. It's awesome for innovations. It's awesome for startups. It's awesome for, um, for people who, who kind of want to take leadership in this role because it means that there's opportunity to help clarify that, to help bring, you know, um, uh, separate the confusion and the noise from, from clarity and value. Uh, so, you know, my advice is 
find those areas of inflection, find those areas of change and, and lean into them. And then finally, you know, be yourself, be authentic, right? It's, it's actually like very hard to make a change and make an impact. Um, uh, you know, if you're trying to be someone else or if you're trying to, to fake it or whatever it is, right? So actually, like, sh I think showing up authentically in 2023, very powerful. Um, and, and, you know, folks want to see yourself and want to hear from you. Um, and so I actually think, you know, in, in sort of with the digital transformation in the last few years, there's a lot more room for written media, whether that's blog posts, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, you know, any other, as you saw, other um, uh, kind of platforms. And so that's kind of an equalizer, actually, for not necessarily favoring the loudest person in the room. It might actually like help folks who, um, you know, can find more opportunities in writing, for example. Um, so I'm stoked for all of that. Um, yeah, hope it helps. Yes, I'm a big fan of what technology has enabled by giving us a platform to all have a voice. And so while at times it can feel a bit noisy out there, the best way to cut through the noise is to be your authentic self because then you'll find your niche and be able to attract the right people to you. So I love that advice. Before we wrap up today, we love to go through some rapid fire questions and have a little bit of fun on the show. So if you're ready, we can dive into the rapid fire questions. Let's do it. All right. Favorite book? Oh, there are so many. Um, I actually typically read sort of a couple of books in parallel. Um, the most recent one that I reread is actually um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, um, which talks a little bit about actually how people use data consciously and unconsciously in making decisions and how there's different systems, systems in one, system two, um, and how, you know, sort of use data around the world and, and sort of our, our judgment and bias in making decisions. So um, that's the most recent. I love it. Great book recommendation. Favorite place you've traveled? Wow, I love traveling. I would say, um, you know, right after, so I was born and raised in Israel, and so I was um, drafted to the Israeli military. And right after my, um, my military uh, time, I actually traveled to South America for about a year. Um, and, you know, literally traveled throughout so many countries, Argentina, Peru, Colombia, um, uh, uh, Chile, so many uh, locations, and just have loved that trip. Um, you know, both kind of the, the freedom in, in um, taking a long, a long time to travel. Um, and also in, in meeting so many amazing people and culture. So uh, definitely that was my favorite trip. Happiness is? Making our customers happy. And pistachio ice it's cream. It's just like a circle of life here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a pistachio. I love it. That's great. In the next five years, I hope to? Build the biggest, most important company possible. Um, working on real problems for data leaders that inspire me every day. Uh, well, we'll be cheering you on on the sidelines here as well. And then last question to me, curiosity is. Watching my daughter, my two-year-old daughter, learn about the world for the first time. Uh, her curiosity um, is, is really inspiring. It's amazing how as kids we have that ability to see the world in totally different ways. I love that. What a great inspiration. Well, Barth, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a true pleasure and appreciate all your wisdom and insights you've shared with us today and really just being a leader in the data space. So thank you. 
and I'm wishing you much success and happiness in 2020. Thank you so much. Appreciate the great questions and conversation. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. So, and to all of our listeners, we want to give a big thank you as well. Remember to stay curious and keep learning, and we will catch you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Data Bytes podcast. If you're looking for more resources to further your data career or find your tribe, we encourage you to become a member at womenindata.org. See you on the other side.